I, I did want to point out one other thing about uh, um, harem warfare. Uh, and the, one of the last points I was making is that the Lord himself is the warrior of Israel. Uh, the angel of Yahweh is the captain of the Lord's hosts. Um, that, that's an ambiguous designation. Hosts, in that military context, can be translated as armies. Uh, this is an angel that's a captain of the Lord's armies. Are, is that angelic armies that are going to fight for Israel? Or is it Israel as the hosts of the Lord that are fighting? I think both are possible. And uh, it may be that the angel is uh, speaking of both. That you have a, the invasion of Canaan is a, uh, both a, uh, a human invasion by Joshua and Israel and an angelic invasion led by the captain of the Lord's hosts. Israel is led by the capital Lord's host. Um, uh, but uh, Yahweh, is the, Yahweh is the warrior and the hero. Uh, and one way that, one interesting way to highlight that is to think about um, other ancient tales of conquest and, and war. And the ones I know best are the Greek epics of Homer, and especially the Iliad, the first of Homer's epics, which is about the Trojan War and particularly about Achilles and his role in the Trojan War. And page after page after page of the Iliad uh, uh, are devoted to uh, detailed descriptions of uh, the heroic actions of different characters in battle. Uh, sometimes they are uh, vivid descriptions of actual killing and slaughter. Uh, sometimes they are uh, poetic similes um, that uh, compare Achilles, for example, to a great lion going out and slaughtering all of the, all of the Trojans that try to stop him. Um, but there is a, a, a focused interest on the human warriors and their prowess. Okay. And that's kind of the whole question, that's the whole issue of the Iliad is the prowess. Achilles is the greatest of the Greek heroes, but he's been offended by the the leader of the expedition, whose name is Agamemnon. And so he's refusing to fight. So he's not using his ability to help his, his fellow Greek soldiers as they battle Troy. Um, but he eventually goes out and then he wins, he, he wins the great battle. He kills the, um, he kills the Trojan hero Hector and then drags his body around the city. Um, but there's, it's a, it's a uh, vivid, utterly captivating, if you, like, if you like reading about slaughter, it's a captivating poem, uh, but it's a vivid description of warfare and human slaughter. Uh, when you turn to Joshua, you have actually very little of that. There are descriptions of what the, the Israelites do to the people of Jericho, for example. They slaughter everyone and they burn the city on fire, but uh, you don't have uh, major descriptions of you know, blood spurting and limbs being lopped off and people suffering in the fire. That's not, and you don't have really much of anything about the heroic military or uh, 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 the, the, the great fighting abilities of somebody like Joshua. Uh, you have a little bit more of that in the book of Judges uh, that's uh, more similar to the Iliad, but still quite different. Um, and I think that's that's part of the, focus of Joshua, that indicates the focus of Joshua is not on 
the human battle and the human heroics. It's about the Lord's conquest of the land. He takes the land and then he distributes the land to his people after, after having conquered it. Uh, one other dimension of this that is, uh, fits with that is the fact that the warfare of Israel is conducted uh, in, some, in a significant, in significant part as liturgical warfare, that is warfare through worship rather than through battle. And um, a, couple of, a couple of ways to see this. Um, one is to, to compare Joshua and the book of Genesis and to look at the different place names that are referenced in the book of Genesis. As, as Abraham travels throughout the land in the book of Genesis, he sets up altars at various places and calls on the name of the Lord as he moves from place to place. Uh, he sets up an altar uh, near uh, Ai, between Hebron and Ai. Uh, that's, a, that's a region of the land where Joshua is later going to fight the, the people of Ai, right? Uh, he sets up an altar, the first altar is near um, Bethel. Uh, and that's another area where Joshua is going to fight. You can, do the, you can trace the same thing with, uh, with Jacob. I have the references down there if you want to look those up. And pay attention to the place names as you're looking at these references in Genesis because they're setting up altars and beginning to worship the Lord in some of the very places where centuries later, Joshua is going to fight battles and defeat the Canaanites and claim the land uh, for Yahweh and for Israel. Okay. So there's a kind of pre-conquest going on in the time of Abraham. He's already claiming the land for Yahweh by setting up altars and worshiping the Lord and calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, and these, the setting up of the altars and the setting up of worship is preparing the land to be captured and to become the Lord's. Okay, so there's a liturgical base or foundation for the conquest. At certain points, at least, the conquest is actually carried out by more by liturgical actions than it is by military actions. And I'm thinking especially of the Battle of Jericho. So who leads the procession around Jericho? It's the priests carrying the ark. Uh, what brings down the walls of Jericho? Battering rams? Uh, trebuchets, it's uh, trumpets, the, the silver trumpets that are part of the equipment of the tabernacle, the silver trumpets that would have been blown, or, the, or maybe the ram's horn that would have been blown at the beginning of the Jubilee year. The Jubilee year is the year when everyone who's been displaced from their own land uh, and the, their ancestral lands returns to their own land and the land gets back into the hands of the original possessors. And Jericho falls because they blow this jubilee trumpet. And Jericho is now going into the hands of its rightful possessors, which is Israel. Okay. Um, the people shout. Um, it's shouting is a liturgical action. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of praise. The Psalms talk about uh, David shouting to the Lord. Um, the, so you have a procession. You have priests leading the, leading the action. Uh, what Israel does in, to conquer the city is to kind of uh, a cleanup operation to carry out the slaughter within Jericho after the walls have already fallen and after the city is already in ruins. But the Lord has already won the victory. 
through a liturgical act rather than uh, through some kind of uh, military tactic or strategy or through superior weapons or any kind of superior fighting power. The Lord wins. What Israel is doing is lifting up Israel and exalting, sorry, lifting up the Lord, exalting the Lord on their praises. And when Israel exalts the Lord in their praises, then the Lord acts on their behalf and takes action and conquers their enemies and gives them the land that he promised to them. Okay. So uh, you have the foundation of the conquest back in the time of Abraham is set by setting up altars. The conquest of the first great city, Jericho, the decisive battle at the beginning of the conquest is carried out by liturgical action primarily. And then the end, the whole goal of the conquest, as I've been emphasizing, is to clear the land of idolatry and to establish the Lord's house and his name in the land so that the Lord's name is exalted. There's a place for festivity and joy in the presence of God. So uh, the beginning, the means, and the end point all have to do with worship. And in fact, uh, Joshua ends with a, uh, a kind of liturgical event. This is skipping back to the back page, the fourth page of your notes. The very last thing I have there is a little summary of uh, the covenant renewal that takes place in Joshua 23 and 24, the last two chapters of the book of Joshua. They've conquered the land. Yahweh has conquered the land. Yahweh has distributed the land to the different tribes. And now they're ready to recommit themselves to the Lord, uh, that they will be the Lord's people and they will obey him in the land. And I've laid it out this way because the, the structure of this covenant renewal service is a uh, very similar to the structure of the book of Deuteronomy, which is another lengthy covenant renewal document. Uh, it begins with a, uh, a uh, invocation of Yahweh, uh, a, uh, the claim that Yahweh is the Lord of the covenant. There's a recounting of what the Lord has done for Israel at the beginning of chapter 24. Uh, there's an exhortation to fear the Lord and to fear him only and to destroy all the idols, not to, not to cling to any idols. Uh, there's a pronouncement of blessings if they are faithful, curses if they aren't faithful, uh, and then right at the end, uh, he makes arrangements for the future continuation of uh, this uh, covenant. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of, the God, of God, and he took a large stone and set it there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So this is in uh, this is in, uh, it says Shechem, but uh, this is uh, near Shiloh. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Uh, thus it will be a witness against us, lest you deny your God. Joshua dismissed the people, each to his own inheritance. So you have this, uh, this uh, stone as a standing witness of the covenant that they've made. It's a reminder, every time they pass by this stone, a reminder we promised that they, we would follow the commandments of the Lord and we would cling to him. Uh, and it's also a witness against them, a witness to the curses that will come on them if they uh, violate the covenant, if they deny the Lord and turn from him. Okay. Uh, that's, the last, that's the last scene of the book of Joshua. Uh, and that's a kind of liturgical act that renews the covenant. This is, it lays out a kind of liturgical order 
um, you know, we have an in invocation of Yahweh as the God whom we're worshiping. We have a reminder, a recollection of what he's done for us. We have exhortations and commandments. We have blessings and curses. These are all things that take place, not just in Israel's worship, but in our uh, worship as Christians. Uh, and this is the climactic moment in the book of Joshua. So um, the, uh, Joshua is a book not just of warfare, but I think specifically of liturgical warfare. Uh, as I've said, the, the, foundations of, uh, uh, the foundations of the conquests are laid by worship. The conquest is carried out by worship. The end of everything is to establish the land as a place of worship. Um, so... Uh, one other, another theme that I want to, uh, I've already mentioned the Moses Joshua stuff that's on there. Um, another theme I want to highlight is the importance of obedience, both as a, um, uh, a necessary uh, component of the conquest uh, and as a necessary demand for continuing in the land. Uh, and this is brought out right at the beginning of the book of Joshua in these famous opening verses uh, that introduce Joshua as the new leader, the new Moses. I'll read the first uh, nine verses of the book uh, of uh, Joshua 1. It came about after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, that Yahweh spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and this people, to the land which I am giving, them to, giving to them, to the sons of Israel, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with you, I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from, to the right, from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you med shall meditate it on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way, and you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Okay. Lots of things going on in there. Um, one of the things that's reiterated several times is this exhortation, be strong and courageous. That's um, uh, repeated three times, I think I counted as I was reading. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9. Be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Uh, because the Lord is with you, he can be courageous in leading the people into the land because of the promise, an Emmanuel promise, that the Lord will be with him, and the Lord will be with him specifically in the task of uh, conquering the land of Canaan that the Lord has promised, in, in, uh, in, in uh, possessing that as an inheritance uh, for Israel. Um, and uh, also important to this, uh, to this promise is the exhortation uh, to cling to the law and do what the law requires. Uh, 
Be careful to do all that was written in the, by Moses, my servant, all that he commanded. Keep the book in front of you all day and night. Meditate on the Torah day and night like the righteous man of Psalm 1. Meditate on the Torah day and night like the righteous king, Deuteronomy 17. When there's a king in Israel, he's supposed to have the law of the Lord before him and keep it before him and meditate on it constantly. Uh, the law shall not depart from your mouth. He's supposed to meditate on it, read it, study it, and speak it. And speak uh, words that are either the words of the Torah or words that conform to the Torah. That's what, that's what Joshua is uh, commanded to do. And as he does that, the Lord promises him success in this conquest. So uh, on one hand, the, uh, the conquest is not highlighting human prowess or military skill because it's highlighting the Lord's own, um, the Lord's own as, the, as, the, as the great warrior of Israel, the divine warrior. On the other hand, it's uh, the, the, the human, the primary human response to this is obedience. Um, uh, the Lord doesn't say you'll be prosperous if you have uh, the right kind of military tactics or military equipment. The Lord says you will prosper if you keep my law close to you and cling to it, which means clinging to me because these are my words. And the chief and greatest commandment is that you'll have no other gods before me. If you cling to the law, you're putting God ahead of everything else. You're loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Um, uh, so that's the first and great commandment, as Jesus says. That's what, if Joshua does that, Yahweh the divine warrior will go with him, and Yahweh the divine warrior will give him success in the conquest. The great counterexample in Joshua is the sin of Achan, which I alluded to briefly, and I'll just expand on a little bit further. Uh, this is uh, Joshua 7. Uh, this is in the aftermath of the conquest of Jericho. Uh, when a city was devoted to destruction, when it was uh, placed under the ban, that's, uh, the, there the word is harem, when it's placed under the ban, uh, no plunder belongs to Israel. When they conquer other cities, there are some cities that they conquer that aren't placed under the ban, and then the plunder is distributed. Uh, and there's, there's rules about how the plunder is distributed in numbers. But a city placed under the ban, it, it, the Lord is the conqueror, and the conqueror gets the spoils. Okay. Everything that's in Jericho belongs to Yahweh. All the people have been devoted to Yahweh by being killed. The city has been devoted by being burned. And all the plunder is holy plunder. It belongs to him only. Okay, that's what holy, holy things, I, I mentioned holy space. Holy space is a space and place where God is present in glory. And he claims that space as his own peculiar special space. The, the uh, sanctuaries of Israel are holy spaces. Holy things are things that God claims specifically as his own. So the altar is a holy thing because it's God's altar. Uh, there are holy, there's a holy table in the tabernacle. There's holy spoons and snuffers and forks. And those are, those are God's utensils. And the priests use them for the, uh, for the sacrifices. They can't use them at home. You know, they can't have a cookout and take the, the utensils from the tabernacle home to use for the cookout. They'd be using God's things for their own purposes. Okay. Uh, that's the sin of sacrilege. And it's an extremely serious sin. 
in the Old Testament, it has to do with holy things, also violations of holy space, violations of holy people. In the New Covenant, all that language of holiness and the reality of holiness uh, is applied to believers and to the church. You are holy space because the Spirit dwells in you. That means you don't belong to yourself. Nothing that you have as part of you belongs to yourself. Nothing that's part of the larger you belongs to you. You know, your house, your furniture, your books, your possessions, your car, whatever you have. God claims you and God claims everything else. It's all under his, under his oversight. And you must use yourself and everything you have for God's purposes and not your own. This is the logic of uh, 1 Corinthians 6. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How can you take God's holy body, your body, and join it to a prostitute? Then you're using your holy body for, uh, for your own pleasure, not for God's purposes. Okay. So all of the stuff about holy things in the Old Testament has application in the New Testament, but it's, but it's humanized, it's personalized. Uh, I don't think the New Testament speaks about holy things, except insofar as they are the things that belong to holy people. Okay. Um, but that's the background of the sin of Achan. So Achan finds plunder. He finds a... Uh, so that I don't get this wrong... He finds silver, a mantle, a beautiful mantle from Shinar, a Babylonian mantle. 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. That's pretty heavy. And uh, he seizes those from Jericho and he buries them in his tent. And um, what he's done is taken things that God has claimed and he's stealing them from God. It's just like if he, if he would have walked into the temple and tried to steal something from the temple. Or it's just like us trying to steal ourselves from God and use ourselves, our bodies, or whatever we have for our own purposes. So the result of that is that Israel loses the next battle against Ai. Uh, the disobedience of one man has, creates this military crisis for the whole people because this one man has committed this great sin of sacrilege. Uh, and it's only after Achan is executed, along with his family, uh, only when uh, Achan and his family are executed that uh, they are able to win the battle of, of uh, Ai. Why is his family executed? Um, I think what's happening is uh, a complicity in the sin of Achan. Uh, uh, Achan took these things into his tent. They concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath, he says, when he finally confesses. Can he, heal, can he hide things in his tent without anybody in his household knowing that he's hiding stuff in his tent? I think this is a, uh, this is a household that's, you know, uh, set up barriers and, uh, to tr try to protect Aiken's, Aiken's hall. They want the booty for themselves, so they're executed along with, with uh, Aiken. And in a sense, he comes under the ban uh, in the... Uh, uh, Joshua 7, 24, jo Joshua and all Israel 
with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that belonged to him. And they brought him to the valley of Achor, and they stunned them to death, and they burned them with fire after they had stunned them to death. Uh, Achan has become a Canaanite, basically. He's violated God's holy things. He's, he's disobeyed God's command not to take the plunder. And he's basically joined the Canaanites. And so if you're going to join the Canaanites, you, get, you end up like a Canaanite, which means the, the ban is taken out on you. Uh, that's that's a, a, a uh, um, principle that's found in the book of Deuteronomy when uh, in Deuteronomy 13, if there's a city in Israel that turns from the Lord and begins to worship other gods, that city comes under the ban it, because it's basically become a Canaanite city and Achan has basically become a Canaanite. Uh, but this, this is, as I said, the great counterexample to what the Lord promises Joshua. If you obey me, you will have success. I will be with you. Uh, cling to me, cling to my word, and I'll give you success in this conquest. And when Israel doesn't, then they have a disaster. Truly I have sinned against the Lord. He acknowledges sin, right? Uh, It's in his favor that he acknowledges sin. But think of this, the circumstance which you've just described. Joshua's casting lots. The priest is casting lots for him, no doubt. Um, Take the tribe of Judah, take the clan within Judah that Achan is part of. Still, Achan doesn't say anything. And then it's narrowing down... um, Achan has all kinds of opportunities to repent and uh, confess. It's only when he's singled out and caught that he confesses his sin. That's in his favor, yes. But I think the fact that it, uh, uh, they know, uh, everyone knows what's happening. Why are we doing lots? I mean, surely Joshua has explained to them Somebody sinned against the Lord. We want to find out who. Um, uh, Israel sinned and transgressed my covenant, which I commanded with him. That's the langu- transgression is the language of sacrilege. Uh, they have taken things under the ban of stolen and deceived. So that's what the Lord tells, tells Joshua. And Joshua has, uh, we don't have it recorded, but surely he's told the people, we've got to deal with this. Somebody stole something from Jericho. Um, Achan has a perfect opportunity to say, it was me. That, this, this, uh, yeah, it, uh, those who have children know the experience of knowing that your kids have done something wrong and, and asking them, interrogating them. Maybe you have this, had this experience as a child yourself, your parents interrogating you, asking you questions. And it's only when you get to the point where you're just absolutely pinned down and you can't escape, and you know that they know, and say, ah, oh, yeah, I did it. Yeah. And up until that moment, you don't. Okay. So I think that there's a, there's a timing issue here that is, I think is a, a kind of, it's, it's, it's disturbing, frightening, but, but important. Same, thing, same kind of thing happens to Saul. You know, Saul says things that sounds like repentance, but Samuel doesn't take them as repentance. And part of it has to do with uh, the, the way that uh, Saul initially responds. Um, why did you spare these cattle? And he tries to tries to pass the buck to the people, or he tries to give a pious explanation for not placing things under the ban. So uh, I think that uh, Achan is similar in not repenting 
instantly, as David does. Once David is confronted with his friend sin, he instantly repents. I, I, that's, yeah, I, I think we have to assume that um, the, the house that Rahab was in was somehow spared of, that, of the collapse of the wall. Because uh, it doesn't say that explicitly, but uh, Joshua is spared... Um, Joshua spares Rahab, rather, in uh, the end of chapter 6. Um, yeah, it doesn't say that explicitly, but I think it seems that uh, her house is preserved. Maybe she was able to get out before the walls completely collapse. Let me say a few things about the, about, further about Rahab. One is that the whole story of jo- the conquest of Jericho is framed by references to Rahab. I read a bit of chapter 2 earlier and Rahab's confession and at the end of chapter 6, after Jericho has fallen, we come back, and the, and the last thing that we're told about Jericho is that Rahab is rescued. So Rahab is kind of the, uh, her story kind of surrounds the whole story of Jericho. So the rescue of this Gentile harlot is uh, an important, important part of the whole narrative. Um, the fact that she's living on the wall, um, it seems similar to me to what uh, Lot is doing in Sodom. Lot has his house by the, by the gate of Sodom or by the wall of Sodom, which puts him in a kind of in-between position. He's living in Sodom, which is an unwise thing for him to do, but he's not fully thrown himself into Sodom, Sodom's culture and way of life. Uh, he's still a right in Sodom. So he's kind of in, in between living, in the, living near the wall. And it seems that Rahab is the same kind of, she is a resident of Jericho, maybe because she's a prostitute, she's marginal. But then she's also spiritually marginal because she's already, clearly she's already been thinking about uh, Israel and Yahweh and she knows who Yahweh is and she fears him already before the, before the spies get there. So she's already kind of straddling between Jericho and outside. Um, the last thing I mentioned is uh, the interesting... Uh, um, interesting details about Rahab's escape, the escape of the spies, uh, the sign that's used in Rahab's uh, window. The, the spies escaped death from the, from the uh, uh, king of Jericho by Rahab sending them through a door, uh, through, a, through a window. It's a kind of uh, Passover, it's a Passover-like rescue, escaping from a house that's where they're doomed. Uh, and I think Rahab's escape from destruction is similar. The, th- the, the sign of her, uh, the sign that she has to put in the window that uh, indicates where her house is in the wall is a scarlet cord. And I, that's a Passover image. That's a, that's a kind of, that's, a, that's analogous to a bloody doorway. Uh, the Lord has allowed a, uh, a passage from death in Jericho to life in Israel through the window of her house. And the indication of that is this blood-colored cord. Um, so I think that there's, a, there's a kind of Passover theme going on here with, uh, with, uh, with Rahab. Uh, yeah? Question about escaping through the window? Yeah. That happens with the spies, right? Yes. Yes. How does the solid act as well? Oh, right. Yeah. There's there. Yeah, well, I think they're all kind of Passover, Passover scenes. Um, yeah, the, there's a the scene with David. Uh, don't know. We'll talk about it directly, but there are a lot of things that link it up with the story of Israel. 
Um, the, the one interesting thing that I, I don't have a good answer to is the, the use of windows. I mean, doorways, uh, doorways and windows are both, they're, they're analogous, but there's, is there something specific to window escapes that's going on that I, I'm not sure if that's the case. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned a, kind of a, Rahab is born, she's rescued from death in Jericho to life outside, and passage through doorways is often an image of birth. I mean, in actual birth, we're passing through a very, very tight doorway. Uh, I saw most of my kids born, and it's very tight uh, for the kids to get out of their mother into the world. Uh, but there is a kind of passage, and passages through doorways are symbols of, or windows are symbols of birth and new birth in the Bible. Okay, a few things about uh, thinking about how this uh, works in the New Covenant. Um, I, won't, I won't take time to talk about Revelation, because you've read uh, the Warren Gage essay that lays a comparison between the fall of Jericho and the fall of the city in Revelation. Uh, I want to highlight a couple other things that are uh, intertextual connections, typological connections with the New Covenant, and then uh, also talk about what the book of Joshua might tell us about our own worship. I've already implied that, um, but I want to fill that out a little bit. Um, Joshua, same name as Jesus, we all know that, right? Uh, Joshua means uh, a savior he saves. Uh, Jesus is just a Greek version of the name Joshua or Yeshua. Uh, and uh, the story of Joshua um, is the story of Jesus, the greater Joshua, uh, uh, in a different key, in a different mode, but it's foreshadowing the life and work and ministry of Jesus in the sense that Jesus is, like Joshua before him, a conqueror, He's a conqueror who is carrying out, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, a kind of harem warfare. Jesus is just as intent on ridding the world of rivals and idols as Joshua was in ridding the land of idols. Okay. Thou shalt have no other gods before me is the first commandment. I think that's also expressing a commitment on God's part, that there will be a world in which there are no other gods before him. There will be a world in which every tongue confesses and every knee bows at the name of Jesus. Uh, there is not a square inch of the world that Jesus isn't claiming and that Jesus won't conquer. And there, again, there are no rivals that he is uh, going to uh, uh, ultimately tolerate. So our job as Christians is as much a war of, I think it's much more closely analogous to Joshua than we might think in terms of its aims, not in terms of its methods, but in terms of its aims. We have the same aims. What Joshua accomplished in small scale in Canaan is what we hope to accomplish, we're commanded to accomplish, and we are promised we will accomplish, that Jesus will accomplish through us in, uh, uh, throughout the world. The world is our inheritance. Abraham, uh, Paul says Abraham was heir of the world. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He inherits the nations and the world. 
and he's going to claim that and he's going to uh, clear it of all idols. Our, and our job is to wage war against every idol in ourselves. Okay. John Calvin said we are little factories of idols, constantly coming up with new forms of self-worship, new forms of worship of creatures rather than the creator. We need to destroy the idols in ourselves. You yourself are a, a land full of idols that needs to be purged, and you need to have, uh, you need to become what you are in fact are, is the temple of the spirit, with no rivals. Uh, if you're a pastor of a church, that's your goal, right? You want a church in which nobody is secretly serving idols. And if you are discovering that they are, you need to address that and confront it and, and purge the church of idols. And you want to send the people out uh, in evangelism and mission, waging war against the idols. That's the same, the same aim and mission. The means are different. Uh, Joshua, insofar as the, uh, Israel participates in the conquest, uh, Israel uses fleshly weapons, swords and spears and hand grenades and Uzis and things like that. Okay. Uh, we wage the same, a war with the same aim, but with different weapons and weapons that have greater power than any fleshly weapons that Joshua had. Okay. When Paul compares the weapons of our warfare with the weapons of the flesh, he doesn't say, you know, uh, wish we had some more swords. He says, our weapons, 2 Corinthians 11, I think. The weapons of our, our warfare, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powered for the destruction of fortresses. <laughs> that sounds like Jericho. We are destroying speculations and every lofting thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking thought, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever, whenever your obedience is completed. You can throw in Ephesians 6 and the armor of God and the spiritual weapons that Paul describes there. I think that's the kind of thing he's talking about. Uh, we've got the sword of the Spirit, infinitely more powerful than any uh, fleshly sword that we could use. We have prayer, we have uh, righteousness, we have the gospel peace, we have the spirit with us and dwelling in us. Uh, we have the same aim in our warfare, but we carry it out under a different Joshua, uh, a greater Joshua with different weapons, but with the same goal of uh, clearing the world of rivals to Jesus Christ and calling on every human being everywhere to bow to him. Uh, Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus as conqueror is the heir and he's the king. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, Psalm 2. One of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. Jesus is the, one, the king on Zion who inherits the nations as his inheritance. Uh, what happens in Joshua after Joshua has conquered the land? After Joshua's conquered the land and Yahweh is enthroned, he's king of the land. He's the 32nd king of Canaan. Then he distributes the land to his people. Okay. Jesus is enthroned uh, in order to give gifts to men. Jesus is enthroned as king of the nations 
to give the nations and share the nations with his people. Okay. In Christ, we are heirs of the world. In Christ, all things belong to us, Paul says. Things present, things to come, life, death, the world, the world to come. All things are ours. Okay. Jesus is not the kind of conqueror who hoards. Uh, even the most pagan of ancient conquerors knew, uh, most of them knew that the way to stay in power was to distribute gifts to the right people. To make sure they stayed, you, you, you create alliances and obligations by giving them gifts. That's how you maintain power. So you're generous, but generous with, you know, with a self-motivated. That's not, Jesus is generous because that's who he is. <laughs> because he's the generous, giving, loving God. Jesus conquers all things and then distributes us to us. Uh, that's, so the, the world is Jesus, it belongs to Jesus, the world belongs to his people, and uh, our goal is to claim the world for him, him, for him so that all the nations acknowledge him. Okay, so that's the, that's the big picture. If you're, if you're preaching on Joshua, you'd want to make it a book about Jesus, Jesus as conqueror, Jesus as, as the obedient son of the Father who carries out his mission with complete obedience, and you'd want to make it a, uh, make it a, a book about mission and how Jesus carries out his, continues to carry out his mission through us and distributes his gifts to us. Uh, you can see this in small scale in the book of Acts and the way that Acts tracks through uh, events of the book of Joshua. Um, I, I did not uh, suggest this book, but there's a, a great article by Rich Lusk, uh, who is my, my pastor, he's one of the co-authors of this book on Ruth. Um, he has an article in a book called The Glory of Kings uh, that I edited a number of years ago. And he has an extensive study where he lays out the, uh, the kind of point-by-point -point comparison between the book of Joshua and the book of, the book of Acts. Of course, the scope is different. Uh, Joshua is conquering the land, a single land that was promised. Uh, the scope of Acts is a mission that's going out from Jerusalem to Samaria, uh, to, to Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay? It's a global mission. Uh, but you have uh, uh, regular parallels between the two. Uh, Joshua begins with the death of Moses and his departure and his successor. And we uh, talked about the question of whether his successor is going to carry on the mission of Moses and complete it or not. That's where we are. In fact, we have the departure of Jesus at the beginning of Acts. We have the ascension scene. Uh, and uh, he promises to send the Spirit to his disciples, but he leaves, and his disciples are now carrying out the mission. Um, uh, Jesus, uh, be courageous, be strong and courageous. Uh, the, uh, the Lord tells Joshua, uh, you will receive power, you will be my witnesses in Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest, remotest parts of the earth. Uh, you will be given power. Uh, I will be with you, Jesus has said in, the, in John's gospel. 
same promises that he gives to the Joshua, uh, that the Lord gave to Joshua. Um, the opening chapters of Acts are concentrated on the mission to a particular city, the key city, a city that is opposed to the disciples, that is Jerusalem. And it's a city that is threatened with destruction. Jesus has said this in the Gospels, and the disciples keep accusing the Jewish leaders of killing Jesus. It's one of the main themes of the early preaching. You want to model your, your preaching on the book of Acts. Uh, you want to find people to accuse of murder. That's one of the main things that they're doing in the early chapters. Uh, you don't want to do that, but that's what they're doing. And they're warning that because they turned against Jesus, uh, they are going to be uh, utterly destroyed. The, a prophet like Moses has come. This is Peter's preaching in Acts 3. A prophet like Moses has come. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 said, everyone who every soul does not heed the prophet like Moses will be utterly destroyed from among the people. And the whole point of the sermon, the speech is, you haven't obeyed the prophet like Moses. You've killed him. And so you're going to be utterly destroyed. So Jerusalem kind of plays the role of a Jericho in the early chapters, uh, the first decisive battle. One of, the, one of the most interesting and strongest parallels at the early chapters of Acts uh, is in Acts 5, where we have a kind of repeat of the sin of Achan. Achan seized the holy, uh, holy stuff from, the, from Jericho. Ananias and Sapphira pretend like they're giving a gift of a certain amount. It's a certain proportion of their, the sale of their property. Uh, they deceive the Holy Spirit. They, uh, I think they're committing a, a kind of sacrilege because they are claiming to devote all of the proceeds of their sale to the Lord, but they keep some of it back. Okay, that's, that's, keeping part of it back is keeping part of what belongs to God for themselves. That's just what Achan does. And, uh, you know, there's no process of identification. They, they're instantly killed before Peter and the apostles. Uh, you know, it's, it's dark comedy, but it's a kind of comic scene. You have, a, you know, read, read Acts 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You have Ananias. He comes in. He lies to the Holy Spirit. He dies. Young men come in. Cart him out. Then the story restarts. You have the same thing happening with his wife now. Sapphira does exactly the same thing. Tells the same lie. Lies dead. The young man coming in again. Another corpse we've got to take out. Um, And because of that event, fear fills Jerusalem. Everybody in Jerusalem is afraid of the apostles. Think back to Rahab and the fear that she has. And she says that all of the people of Jericho and the people of Canaan are fearful of Israelites who are coming. Jerusalem is struck with fear because of what the Lord is doing through the apostles. We talked about how uh, at least we have these, a couple of instances of Gentiles being incorporated into Israel in the book of Joshua. That's, of course, a major theme of uh, the, um, the, the book of Acts, right? The, the inclusion of the Gentiles is uh, one of the major uh, innovations, as it were, and one of the main crises in the book of Acts. Um, there are other parallels, parallels we could fill out, but that's, again, a, a way of giving more detail to the idea that Joshua is a book about mission. And if you were preaching or teaching on Joshua, you'd want to look at those parallels and say, well, what's happening in Joshua is a foreshadowing 
of the mission of the church happening in the book of Acts. And there are these, these detail, uh, there's uh, similarities of detail that uh, indicate that parallel. Uh, one last thing, uh, and I think this was implied by what I said about liturgical warfare before, but I'll say it more explicitly. Um, Joshua conquers and Israel conquers by worship. They conquer Jericho by lifting the Lord up on their praises, by blowing trumpets, by shouting, by carrying the ark of the Lord. Okay. Um, and that remains our chief uh, source of conquest and power. Uh, when we worship faithfully, when we uh, offer our praises to God and lift him up on our praises, when we call on him to act and to uh, uh, des destroy evil and to uh, establish his kingdom, that's one of our weapons. When we submit ourselves to the word of God, we're being renewed and refreshed and retrained so that we can be instruments of mission and conquest. Um, I think what's uh, the the the, uh, the kinds of the kinds of spiritual weapons that we employ are employed in intense form when we gather for worship, and that's the center and the source of the uh, the conquering power that we have as as uh, as the Church of Jesus Christ. So uh, it can seem um, our weapons can seem weak and ineffective. You know, Jesus sent, uh, Joshua sends Israel to conquer, but he gives them weapons. And Jesus sends up to us to conquer and said, Here, here's a book. You'll, you'll need some water to baptize people. Once you have baptized people, you'll want to offer them bread and wine. Okay, go. What else, what more do you need? But, and really, truly, we don't need anything more. The Spirit is with us. Uh, that, those are the weapons of our warfare. And we conquer in, uh, in the same liturgical fashion that Israel did in the book of Joshua. Yeah, um, I, I do have a commentary on Matthew. And my basic outline of Matthew is that Matthew is uh, a retelling of the entirety of the Old Testament uh, with Jesus playing the role of a faithful Israel. Yeah, that's, that doesn't capture everything that's going on in uh, Matthew, but I think that's the basic. And you can see that early on in Matthew. It's really clear in the early chapters. You have the first phrase of Matthew is Biblos Genesios, book of the Genesis. Okay, that's, Those are the first two words of Matthew's gospel. And then you've got a genealogy. starts with Abraham and goes to Jesus. You have a Joseph a guy named Joseph who has dreams, a guy named Joseph who ends up in Egypt for a while. Okay. You're, in the book of, you're in the book of Genesis early on in Matthew. Uh, then Jesus appears on the scene. He passes through the waters of his baptism, goes into the wilderness, is tempted to the wilderness, and then goes to a mountain. Okay. We're in the book of Exodus, and Jesus teaches on the law from the mountain. So um, the early chapters are clearly setting us up as a parallel to uh, Genesis and Exodus, and virtually every commentator recognizes the, the Moses parallels. But I think they continue, and the, the, there are five large teaching blocks in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 3-5, through five, the uh, commissioning of the disciples that Josh mentioned in 
uh, Matthew 10, the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, uh, the Olivet Discourse, the, the, the woes against the Pharisees and the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 23 through 25. Uh, sorry, I missed one. The, 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 uh, um, the rules for the, the, the instruction about forgiveness and community discipline, that's in chapter 18, and then the Olivet Discourse at the end in chapters 23 to 25. And I think those, are, those match up pretty neatly with different phases of Israel's history. The Sermon on the Mount is a mosaic kind of sermon. The commissioning of the disciples in Matthew 10 is a commissioning, is a, they're sent out to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they're sheep among wolves. Uh, they're being sent out by a Joshua, a Jesus. I think there's a, that's a Joshua-like commissioning. The parables of the kingdom link up with, Mo, uh, with Solomon and the monarchy era. And the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is acting like a prophet, uh, is a prophet like um, Jeremiah or one of the prophets against the first temple. Um, one little, uh, sorry, you, you did ask for Matthew, so. Um, uh, one of the things that, that, that got me thinking along these lines, looking at the very beginning of Matthew and the first, first phrase, I think, is a strong hint. And then you look at the end of Matthew, and the Great Commission is right at the end. Um, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and so on. Um, that has a number of parallels with the very end of the book of Second Chronicles, Cyrus's decree that Israel will be allowed to go back to the land. He claims authority uh, from the God of heaven. He has authority over all the earth. His command to Israel is to go. Okay. They're going back to a place where they've been before. Jesus is, I think the Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus as world emperor. He has all authority, not just on earth, but also authority in heaven. He's the emperor of the cosmos, not just the earth. Uh, and he is uh, like a Cyrus sending a, uh, sending Israel, a new Israel, not to go back where they came from, but to go to the Gentile, the nations. What's interesting, one of the interesting uh, dimensions of that is that Second Chronicles in the Hebrew, the current, at least, the current arrangement of the Hebrew canon is the last book of the Old Testament. So uh, uh, the Old Testament in the Hebrew canon begins with Genesis and ends with Second Chronicles and ends with that commission of Cyrus. Um, Matthew, I think, is the bookends of Matthew are matching those, the Biblos Genesios at the beginning and then the Great Commission at the end. So those are, that's a long way, long-winded say, way of saying, yes, Matthew 10 is a, uh, a Joshua-like commissioning. Yes. Uh, 